always do and hear from God's word as we begin our time together. Psalm 122 says this, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Well, I woke up this morning so glad to be with the house of our God, not just in a building. Because this is a house that is not built of brick and stone, but of brothers and sisters, built up and united in Christ. So let us express that unity together as we sing and sing for our gladness. I was glad when they said, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. I was glad. Walls are built on love and faith, founded in our unity. I was glad when they said, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the For the peace of the temple, he will secure every stone. Sing for the sake of all the people, speak good and make his rest known. I was glad when they said, Set for all time for the Christ, David's son. I was glad when they said, I was glad when they said, Let us go to the house of the Lord. I was glad when they said. Let us go to 
Yes, we are glad. We're glad. We're glad that we get to be here together as a church. We're glad that we get to sing with our voices. Most of all, we are glad that we can come into the house of our God because of Jesus and what he has done for us in his death and resurrection. You can be seated. If you're visiting with us, we're glad also that you're here. I don't know why you're here. I don't know what God is doing in your life that he's brought you here this morning, but we're glad and we want to help you any way that we can. So if you have questions, questions about our church, questions about Jesus, we want to answer those questions for you, at least try to. So after this service, we will have some people up here up front that are pastors. They would love to get to know you and answer questions that you might have, or if you'd rather, or if you're watching online, you can email us at info at dscabq.com, and we are here for you, however we can help you, okay? And if you're visiting or, or you're a member here and you are the parent of little kids, we want to make you aware of some changes that maybe you've already noticed that we've put in place for our Sunday morning gathering. As we've said before, and we'll say many times as a church, we love having families worshiping together, even with your youngest kids. We think that this is really important that parents, you take the time to bring your kids into worship with us so that you can train them in sitting quietly and attentively as we all gather together as a church. We don't want to treat our little kids like they just belong somewhere else in little church, and this is big church. We, we want to worship together as families. But I'm a parent. Drew's a parent. Ryan's a parent. We know what it's like to have little kids. I've got a four-year-old and an eight-month-old right now, and I know that some Sundays are better than others. Amen? Can I get an amen on that? Okay. And especially right now with COVID and we're not offering uh, nursery and childcare like we normally do for the, the youngest little kids, I know parents, some Sundays have been really tough to have your kids in here with us. And so let me just say to you, you're doing a great job. You're doing a really good job. And what you're doing is important, training up these little kids, okay? And I know that some Sundays are just hard. Maybe it's been a long row of Sundays, but let me just tell you that God, I believe, will bless that work that you're doing, okay? That you are training up your kids in the way that they should go, okay? So don't get tired of doing good. Keep it up. We know it's tough, okay, but you're doing the right thing. But if it's one of those Sundays, okay, where your kids are just having a hard time, you know, your little one is like speaking in tongues in the back of the church while we're listening to the sermon, it's okay to take your kids out, okay? And to try and help you do that, to just make that easier for you, we've made some changes. So the very back rows of our church are going to be reserved for, for families with little kids so that if you do need to get up and step out, you're not gonna feel like you're distracting other people in front of them, okay? And then what we've also done is we've opened up a whole room, a big room right over here called the West Wing. So if you just go out those doors and then turn the corner, it's a room that you'll see on your right, right there. We'll have the same service playing right there in that room. And so you can take your little wiggly kids, especially if they're really young, like two years or younger, you can take them in there and they can be noisy and kind of move around and you can still engage with the service and participate in the service that way for you, okay? So we wanted to make that available and make you know that that's there. And for, for those of you that don't have kids or it's been a while since your kids were really little, let me give you an encouragement, okay? If there's a, if there's a little kid that's distracting you and, and crying, instead of getting frustrated or discouraged by that, thank God for life. Thank God for all of the blessings of little kids that he has brought to our church that, that get to be trained up here in this church. 
So when there's a little kid that's crying, don't get frustrated, but, but use that as a, as a reminder that you need to pray for that little kid. Thank God for that little kid and pray for those parents because they need your prayers. They need energy. They need encouragement. And maybe even after the service, go and introduce yourself to them and just give a word of encouragement to that parent that you're doing a good job. I see you, okay? Because we're a family, right? We're a family that's all together trying to train these kids in the way that they should go. And speaking of a church working together to train these families, I've, I've got an announcement that I want to make. So a few weeks ago, we had uh, a friend of mine named Tate Madzima who came to visit our church for a candidating weekend for the open position that we have for the children and family minister role. So Tate came with his wife, Rachel, and their youngest daughter, Lily, and they came to check out our church, and we came to get to know them, and after we spent a wonderful weekend with them, it seemed right to the Holy Spirit and to the leadership of this church to uh, extend an offer to Tate to take that position. And by God's grace, Tate's family felt led to accept that offer, right? <laughs> Praise God. So that's gonna be Tate's role, is to come in and especially help us parents as we are trying to raise these little kids, and we are so thankful that God has brought them to us, and I'm asking for your prayer now, because it's gonna be a lot of work for them and a lot of logistics for them to sell their house in Texas and get over here, and it, so it could take a few months, and it's gonna be kind of stressful for them, so please remember them in prayer. It's Tate and Rachel, and they have three boys, Xander, Zeke, and Kai, and then Lily, as I said, okay? So we are glad for them, and we were we're going to pray for them right now and pray for the rest of our time together this morning, okay? God, we do thank you for this good news that you're bringing the Madzimas to our church. Thank you for working sovereignly and making your will very clear to all of us. And God, we pray for this family. We pray that you would bless their plans and their preparations as they get ready to move. I pray that you would bless this transition, which is going to be a very big move for their family. I pray that it would go smoothly and that it would be a, a, a blessing and a joy to them. And Lord, I pray that they would be a blessing and a joy to our church, that you would bless Tate's ministry and help us parents to raise these kids in the way that they should go. And God, we thank you for all the kids. We thank you for all of the life that you are giving to our church, and I pray that you would be with our parents. I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that you would give them the energy that they need, Lord, and I pray that you would give them help if they need it, that they would ask for help if they need it. But God, be... Uh, be faithful to our parents. Be faithful to these little kids. Help them most of all to believe in Jesus as their Savior. And Lord, as we turn again to sing to you, we confess together as a church that we have no right to come into your house, to come into your presence on our own merits. None of us is righteous. We have all sinned against you. We have sinned against you this week. We have sinned against you this morning. And Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand before you? But with you there is forgiveness, and therefore you are feared. So we come to you, God, not in our own righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness that you have given to us through his sacrifice on our behalf. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand and continue in confession together. Out of my bondage, sorrow, and I, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come. Into thy freedom, gladness, and life, Jesus, I come. 
now for the amazing mercy we've been shown in Christ. We give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Let us honor him as we should. The Lord has done as he said he would. Our God has done great. 
thanks. Sing it again. We give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Let us honor Him as we should. The Lord has done as He said He would. Our God has done great things. Let the redeemed sing out to the Lord. His mercy My name is David. I am one of the non-staff pastors here. Let's uh, take advantage of this access that we have through Christ. Let's pray together. Let Yes, our God, you have done great things. It is good and right that we respond in praise to you. Let the redeemed call out to you. What is the basis for that redemption, Father? It's because we have been bought out of the slave market of sin. The basis for our redemption is none other than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we think of the great things that you have done, none is greater than what Jesus accomplished on that cross 2,000 years ago. Now, Father, because we belong to Christ, because you have redeemed us by grace, we are to grow in grace. The same grace that justified us is the same grace that transforms us. That's why you tell us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you, Father, in this local church where there there are so many who have committed themselves to studying your word and even joining with others to study your truth. But there's some of us that need help to grow. Perhaps even today there are some on the edges of our church life, playing it safe, maybe even acting like lone rangers in the faith that they need to reach out for help in their growth. Perhaps there are others in our church that are not using their gifts for the edification 
of the body. As the ladies in our church begin their new studies in the word of God, especially in the book of John, sanctify them in the truth. May they even more appreciate the person of Christ as the God-man. May they grow in satisfaction for Christ in his person as well as his work. I pray also for the byproduct of their study would be a fulfillment of Paul's words to Titus. In the relationship of older women to younger women, may older women teach what is good. May they teach the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, that is prudent, it's self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so the word of God will not be dishonored. For all of us, Father, may the fruit of the spirit of all within this church abound to the praise of your glory. May we excel still more in showing love for one another. May men and women, young people and children, all become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Father, the book of Romans teaches us by your mercies, we are to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to you, which is our spiritual service of worship, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. So Father, take our lives, even this morning, as consecrated unto you. Take all that we have, all that we are, in service to you and to the kingdom of your son. We commit ourselves this morning to you in the name of our savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Let us stand and continue in prayer through song.
Yes, Lord, take all of us, body and soul, take all of our parts, and may they be more assigned, more reserved to your glory and your purposes. Would you take our minds this morning, Lord, and let them be fixed on your word. Take our ears this morning, Lord, and let them be open to truly hear, eyes to see. Lord, give us what we need. We pray for this in Jesus' strong and saving name and for your glory. Amen. You could be seated. Well, how are we doing, church? How's it going today? How goes this week? In light of last week's passage of Nehemiah 9 in their great and lofty prayer of confession of sin, how'd it go? James tells us that we should be not just hearers of the word, but doers also. And it's easy to come away from a Sunday thinking, all right, I got some things to do. I have some things to change. And, and perhaps a, a week later, we need to take our pulse again and say, okay, how, how did that go? And I know for myself, by God's grace, in this past week, I have found myself more aware of my sin and, and more in awe of the sheer undeserved nature of the gospel and the access to God in prayer. Uh, but I want more of it. I need more of it. And uh, we need more of chapter 10 to influence our lives, not just chapter 9. As we come to chapter 10 of Nehemiah this week, I'm reminded that the Bible is oftentimes a bit like a, a kaleidoscope. Uh, it has varied colors and hues and tones and shapes, and, and it has movement to it. There are parts of the Bible that are just chalked full of surprises, and no two passages are exactly the same. And sometimes the Bible varies in its style and methodology and tone from, from one text to another quite drastically and quite quickly. Of course, the Bible is not chaotic. It's anything but slapped together sloppily by merely human authors. But just take, uh, say, Nehemiah 9 and chapter 10 as examples. They obviously go together. Chapter 10 is what happens next after chapter 9. And chapter 10 records the making of a covenant, really the renewing of a covenant, that naturally and logically flows out of the confession of sin that took place in chapter 9. But one way they differ is with the sheer number of matters that get covered in chapter 10 compared with chapter 9. If chapter 9 is like a musical score, it's one that just keeps dinging the same note. It's like the melodic line of this song has a, a C that just keeps going ding, 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 ding. And that ding, that C note in chapter 9, of course, is that confession of sin through the remembrance of God's faithfulness in the past despite God's people's unfaithfulness. Well, chapter 10 is more diverse than that. It's more of a concerto. There is a variety of notes it covers several different theological and ethical matters drawn from the Old Testament, but which have relevance for the New Testament. And there in the New Testament, we'll see that these 
These issues grow and blossom. They evolve. They have fingers. It's as if with chapter 9, the kaleidoscope was beautiful, but it wasn't really spinning. And that's good at times for us to just sit and soak and stare and, and not move. But with chapter 10, the kaleidoscope is sort of spun, and we see an array of themes. I'll start the reading of our passage with the last verse of chapter 9. It's verse 38. I mentioned last week that could just as easily go with the contents of chapter 10 as with chapter 9. The last verse of chapter 9 reads, Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And now chapter 10, verse 1 says, On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor. And stop there for now. What follows in the next 26 verses are something like 85 different names, which I'm not going to read for you. (laughs) The point of those names, we'll get to that, that's coming in a bit, but in short, they are mostly family names, representing whole families. So there are a lot of names, and they represent a lot of people. And beyond the precise names of the first 27 verses, notice in verse 28, there's even a a more general summary statement to show that this covenant renewal that takes place in chapter 10, it had a wholesale buy-in among the people of God, not just among the 85, 86 names that are mentioned before it. And so we'll pick up the reading in verse 28 of Nehemiah 10. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt." We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, 
as it's written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Well, three P's, three P words came to mind for me to summarize three different sections in this chapter. The first is the people, the people. Verses 1 to 27, of course, give us this list of names, and it's those families that have committed themselves to a covenant renewal. We'll get to the covenant renewal in just a bit, but let's focus on first the people involved in it. Now, Nehemiah is a book that has several different lists of people. Back in chapter 3, there was a list of names for those who would give themselves to the rebuilding of the wall. In chapter 7, there's another list, and this is the record of those who returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. If you look over in your Bibles to chapter 11, you'll see there there's another list of names. This one, the longest, it stretches into halfway through chapter 12. And this is the names of those who were going to live in Jerusalem. Now, FYI, uh, we won't take time next week for chapter 11. Why? Well, it's not to skip a part of God's word. It's not to avoid a part of God's word that's uh, annoying or something like that. It's because whatever is true of those names in chapters 11 and 12 is also true of the names that we'll deal with today in chapter 10. Whatever can be said of one can also be said of the other. In fact, what can really be said of these names in chapter 10 can be said of any of the lists that were provided in the whole book of Nehemiah. Here's what we learn from these lists of names in Nehemiah, that there is a unity among God's people. There's unity represented here. There's wholesale commitment from these people. They were all in, and they were all in, you could say. And yet they are individuals, aren't they? Even if they're represented among a family head, There are individuals here. These names are real names. These are real people. They matter. And because they're real people, there's diversity here. Notice verse 28, which is still describing the people involved. There are diverse people. It says the rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God with their wives and sons and daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. That's a diverse group. In fact, that phrase, all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land, some scholars suggest that that's referring to Gentile converts. 
Jim Hamilton, professor at Southern Seminary, in his great little commentary on Nehemiah, he suggests this. And, and I think he points to Deuteronomy 29. That's another covenant renewal ceremony at the end of Moses' life. And there Moses says, You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, heads of tribes, elders, officers, all men of Israel, little ones, wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp. From the one who chops up wood to the one who draws water, you are before the Lord to this day, so you might enter into a sworn covenant with the Lord your God. You see, this is, I think, a reference to not just God's people, but all those who would also, among the nations, come to identify with Yahweh God as the true and only God and put their hope in him. So it's exclusive and inclusive. It's exclusive in that you got to make a covenant with this God, the true God, but it's inclusive. Wherever you're coming from, whatever your background, come. It's a diverse group. And as we come to the New Testament, some of these themes ring true again. God's people in the New Testament Well, they are individuals. They are a whole. There is unity. There is diversity. And we come to the New Testament, we find that our names are even written in heaven, not just on a logbook for a a city, not just on an old covenant that lost its relevance now some couple thousand years ago. Luke 10, there Jesus tells the disciples to rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Individuals recorded in heaven, there in the the logbook of who enters in. Rejoice that your names are written there. In John 10, Jesus, the good shepherd, says that he calls his sheep by name, and they hear his voice, and they listen, and they follow. It's in Revelation that we find out that there is a Lamb's book of life. The Lamb, Jesus, has a book of life, and there are names written in it, and no one can blot out those names. They are not written in pencil, and those names were written in that book before the foundation of the world. Names written in heaven. There's the book of life in the New Testament. There's also the body of Christ in the New Testament, which has relevance for these long lists of names in Nehemiah. Remember that picture that Paul paints in Romans 12 and again in 1 Corinthians 12? He paints this analogy of the church being a body. Parts, but a whole. It has hands and feet and eyes and ears and the different parts do different things but they all do it connected to the whole and for a grander purpose than their own well that's what we see throughout these these lists there's unity and diversity each doing their part each doing what is most important for the whole for their God. That's not unrelated to church membership, which we find in the New Testament. And we do find it in the New Testament in a roundabout way. In Acts 2 and then again in Acts 5, there are totals of people given for those who have believed. Those who believed and were baptized and were added to the church that day, Acts 2, it's about 3,000 people. And then in Acts 5, it's 5,000 people. 
And they're not just sort of estimating. They're not just sort of uh, inflating their numbers to brag to the church down the street that their church is really growing. These numbers represent people. They represent souls. They represent converts. They represent those who have covenanted together to be the church and to do what God calls the church to do. So if you're not a member of a church like that, going to church, well, that's, that's good, but there's more. Attending a church, tuning in to a church online, these are all fine, but I wonder, are you a member of a church? Does a church know that you're this body part doing this thing and you can be counted on? Do you give some accountability to the whole, to the other body parts to do their part? Well, if you are a part of this church like that, then we should keep living out that covenant of fellowship we've all agreed to. And we should keep, through this year and beyond, keep praying through our membership directory as we've been doing already. How sweet it is to see specific names, specific people. It's a diverse group, but it's God's group. It's Christ's body. And most of the names listed in our membership directory are much easier to pronounce than those in chapter 9, by God's grace. The second P is their pledge. Their pledge. You see in verse 28, the rest of the people, and then a variety of different categories are given. Verse 29 says, we enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord. Or back in chapter 9 at the end, it was worded like this, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. Or literally, it's we cut a promise. They're making a promise, a pledge. They're making a covenant. Is it a new covenant, you might wonder? And that would be a fair question to ask. What is this covenant? Where does it come from? What is its significance? I purposely titled this message, A New Covenant Question Mark, because it's a good question to ask of this passage especially in light of the fact that before this, a hundred years before perhaps, Jeremiah back then, the prophet, he was speaking of a new covenant that would come even before the days of the exile. He was promising not only that God's discipline and judgment would come upon the people, but that one day there'd be restoration and that one day beyond that, there would be this new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. He goes on to say, Jeremiah 31, it's not like the covenant that God made with the fathers on the day when he led them by the hand out of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, God says. This is the covenant I will make sometime in the future. I will put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's a different kind of covenant than any before. It has connections to the Abrahamic covenant, of course, but it's different than what we call the Mosaic covenant. You see the distinction that Moses' covenant was written on tablets of stone outside of us. It's something we submit ourselves to. And it had its point and its purpose in God's plan 
at its time. But God speaks in Jeremiah 31 of a covenant that's coming where he puts the law on our hearts, on our desire box, if you will. He puts it on our will. We will be his people. He will be our God. That's an eternal covenant. That's the way Ezekiel words the same covenant. He calls it an eternal covenant or a covenant of peace. And he describes it in chapter 36 like this. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. In that covenant, God provides what he long ago required. In that covenant, God initiates. In that covenant, God will accomplish. That covenant, the new covenant, the everlasting covenant, it's unilateral, not bilateral. It's one way. He does it. It's unconditional. And that's not the covenant that our passage is talking about. Our passage is talking about the Mosaic covenant, a covenant that was renewed and repeated back in Deuteronomy 28 to 30. I already referenced Deuteronomy 29. But really, this is Moses' final sermon before he dies and before his ministry ends, and he wants to paint the picture for Israel. It's a fork in the road. There are two ways. If you obey all his commandments, you'll be blessed, blessed, blessed. He describes that blessing many ways over many verses. But if you will not obey him, if you won't go his way, you will be cursed, 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 And he describes those curses many ways over many verses. He says in chapter 30, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. What's it going to be? That covenant needed to be renewed at the end of Deuteronomy because God's people had failed and broken it time and time again in the wilderness. As we saw last week in chapter 9 of Nehemiah, they just kept breaking covenant with God. They said they would stick to it, but then, man, a minute later, they don't. God remained faithful. He stuck to his end of the covenant, but as for them, they kept breaking and breaking and breaking, and there's these renewal ceremonies over and over again, and that's what we have in Nehemiah 10. It's the renewing of that Mosaic covenant. That's why they talk about a curse and an oath in obeying all that God has commanded. Now their instinct in Nehemiah 10 to renew the covenant is good and right for the place they were in in God's redemptive plan. You see, it's always true. Understanding God's faithfulness better juxtaposed or contrasted with our own unfaithfulness, when we understand his forgiveness and faithfulness more and better, we we should want to turn and recommit and and, and go God's ways and and resolve to, to do what his word tells us to do. It was good and right for them to renew the covenant, but it is it was inadequate. 
It is wholly insufficient for the task. Can you just feel the tension coming out of chapter 9 and into chapter 10? All this failure, despite God's faithfulness and forgiven, his forgiveness, you have to wonder, will this cycle ever be broken? Will he really just keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgetting? Will he keep getting dirt kicked in his face? Will he ever get sick of these fickle people who say one moment with seemingly all sincerity, they mean it this time, they will go God's way, and they don't. The problem just keeps building, doesn't it? It keeps building. I mean, you can come to the end of chapter 9 of Nehemiah and, and, and legitimately feel this, really? Really? Is this one going to stick? And alongside it, you have promises even before Nehemiah's day of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, of a new covenant, new hearts, God imprinting his ways upon those hearts. What we saw last week is that Jesus came to die for those sins. He was the payment that was needed. All along, God was not just forgetting, forgiving, forgetting, and forgiving like some sort of cheesy pushover. He was always righteous and just. It's just that we were awaiting the payment, and Jesus is the payment. Romans 3, God is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. He is righteous and the redeemer of those who trust that Jesus is their saving hope. Remember that curse theme? If you don't obey, curse, curse, curse. Well, Galatians 3 tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's what the cross was all about. He was bearing a curse for those who are cursed. He's not, but he bore the curse that we might not be cursed, but be blessed, blessed, blessed. Not by earning God's favor, not by obeying all the commands. We never could. Not by resolving afresh and doggone at this time we really mean it. We'll fail. That's why the Lord's Supper is so important. It not only shows us where our forgiveness lies, but gives us the hope of transformation. Jesus called the cup of the Lord's Supper the cup in the new covenant of his blood. We tend to think of the cup as the blood, but it's the cup of the new covenant. It's the cup of the promises of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 and elsewhere of God one day not only forgiving but also transforming. Oh, not perfectly so, not all at once, but genuinely so and in a way that the old covenant never could. A new covenant? Not in Nehemiah 10. They weren't ready for it yet. It wasn't God's time just yet. But for us on this side of the cross, yeah, it's a new covenant. That's what we need. That's what he gave. 2 Corinthians 3 contrasts the law written on tablets of stone with the law written now on the heart. 
It contrasts the transformation that Moses got on his face when he beheld the glory of God, but how we have a lasting and more glorious transformation that takes place when we behold the glory of Christ in the pages of Scripture. This is what we offer to you if you're not yet a Christian. But we offer to you not only Jesus Christ, the righteous Redeemer who died in the place for our sins, not only one who would bear your curse, though you have, as it were, cursed yourself over and over again as we all have because of our sin. God can wipe that clean. We offer to you not only a Savior who holds out blood that cleanses, washes white, but, but, but a whole new covenant package, a God who relates to us and will be with us and we will be with him forever and ever, unchangeably so, because he has done it. He's accomplished it. We offer to you a transformed heart. Isn't it a glorious thing? Christians know that to be true. Oh, we wish we had more of God's transforming grace now, but we're confident of all of it in God's timing to come. He'll transform us fully one day. One day we'll be with him and we won't have sin for we will see him as he is. We want you in on that if you haven't yet bought in with Jesus now, thirdly, there are some particulars to deal with. Particulars. There are three of them in the rest of this chapter. There's marriage, the Sabbath, and contributions. And these are all Old Testament-rooted matters. They're all part of this covenant renewal where it gets more specific. But they all have New Testament significance for us as Christians. And so, though it gets a, a, a bit clumsy at times... We as New Testament Christians, when we're studying the Old, we have to keep both feet in the two Testaments. We have to be comfortable with going back and forth and trying to understand it back then, but trying to understand it now in light of the further significance that came when Jesus was born and died and was raised. And so just stay agile with me. Know that the kaleidoscope really gets to spinning here as we speak of these so we deal with these three particulars. The first being marriage. It's in verse 30 where they say, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now we should clarify the issue at stake here is, is not interracial marriage. The concern was not for ethnic purity. It was for spiritual purity. The problem was with interfaith marriages, not interracial marriages. Just ask Ruth and Boaz, one example of a, a Jew and a Gentile who were married under Yahweh God, both believing and trusting in him, and God was glorified in it. It was good and right. The concern is this, that followers of the true God, Yahweh, should only marry true followers of God. It comes from Deuteronomy 7, where God says, You shall not intermarry with them, 
giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Here's why. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. That was a problem dealt with in Ezra 7 to 10. Uh, It's a problem for King Solomon, as we'll see when we get to Nehemiah 13, where it keeps being a problem for these people in Nehemiah's day. Here's the problem. Here's how this looked and how it went down for Israel and their pagan neighbors. Keep in mind that all Gentile nations, these were polytheists. They believe in multiple gods. And for them, marriage was God-inclusive. The more, the merrier. So husband has these 40 gods, new wife has these other 50 gods. It's okay, put all 90 on the fireplace mantle. The more, the merrier. It's no problem for these polytheistic gods, uh, these polytheistic worshipers surrounding Israel. But for Israel, the only monotheistic people in these days in that land, this is a massive problem. Because marriage is so special and so unique. It's so constant, it's so intimate, it's so personal, and it's so all-consuming that there's nothing else quite like it. Doesn't Genesis talk about marriage as the two people becoming one flesh? And that, yes, relates to the physicality of the marriage bed, but not just the marriage bed, it's It's all of life. Two people are increasingly becoming more and more one. This is a people who are made in God's image to reflect him. Marriage before God is to be a partnership under his rule with this mission of reflecting his image and and doing his work and subduing creation for his glory and for his purposes. God is the most fundamental and far-reaching thing for those who believe in this fundamental, far-reaching God. And so it's a problem to try to live that out with someone who has really a different radar screen pulled up or someone who's reading not just from a different page, but a whole different book when it comes to life. And these things carry through to the New Testament. There's relevance here for Christians in the New Covenant. 2 Corinthians 6 says, Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And there Paul is referring to specifically the church and how the church needs to be one, believers, not a mixed group of believers and unbelievers. But it also applies to this thing of marriage, partly because we find this same principle repeated elsewhere, like in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, where Paul gives the advice that a widow is free to marry whomever she wants only in the Lord. He means only another Christian. Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 9 that the apostles have a right to travel with a believing wife, a believing wife. 
You see, it's so assumed, this principle of the Old Testament, it's so assumed in the New that it's only mentioned and referred to in passing. So I think it, it remains. We still need it. The New Covenant uh, doesn't make marriage to a non-Christian any easier or right. And so if you're a Christian who's not yet married, determine now you will marry a Christian. All others, they're off the board. They're not up for consideration. And don't get emotionally involved with a non-Christian of the opposite sex because it's so easy for it to, to, to become this romantic thing and then all of a sudden you're, you're out over your skis. Emotions are leading the way. Christian parents, determine this for your kids. You know, I know at some point they're, you know, in their late 20s or 30s and you don't have a say. They may not ask you, but earlier on, uh, maybe they're still asking you and maybe you can insert yourself and determine for them, help them. You will not give your sons to their daughters or take their daughters for your sons. Now, if you are a Christian who finds yourself married to a non-Christian, well, know that there is forgiveness with this God. This new covenant's all forgiving. You may have stubbornly said, yeah, I know that's in the Bible. I've heard advice from others that it's unwise. I don't care. I'm going to marry him anyway. Now you're married. Okay. Stay there. Uh, don't give up. Two wrongs don't make a right. Know that there's forgiveness. Trust God for his sovereignty in your life, even through your poor decisions. And lean on passages like 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Peter 3. If you're a Christian who's married to a non-Christian, hopefully I don't need to tell you something you don't know, that 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Peter 3 are passages for you that tell you not only how you should live with your non-Christian spouse, but give you hope for your non-Christian spouse. Go back to those if you've forgotten. By the way, uh, we did a podcast this week, which will be available, I think, tomorrow uh, on this topic to dig into it more. Chase and Drew and I gave some time to talk more about this thing of marriage and being equally yoked in Christ as the ideal. So check out that podcast if you want. You can get it on iTunes or uh, on our website under media. And now two more particulars, and we'll go through these more quickly. The second one is the Sabbath. That's dealt with in verse 31. If the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them. This is referring to the weekly Sabbath. The word Sabbath means rest. This refers to the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. There, God said that God's people should, on the seventh day, rest and honor that day. Keep it holy. Now, in our culture, because we have a five-day workday, generally speaking, and a two-day weekend, reserving some time for rest is really not all that problematic. Most bosses do not demand your utter availability uh, every day of the week. 
But in ancient Near East, this was more of a cultural and economic pressure for, for the people to be constantly available for commerce and to, to work all seven days. And there was also this seventh year Sabbath mentioned in the second half of verse 31. We will forego the crops of the seventh year. You see, they were to let the land lie dormant for that seventh year. It's in Leviticus 25. They were also in that seventh year to cancel any debts that were owed to them. That's Deuteronomy 15. Now, all these things, these Sabbaths, these are remarkable opportunities to trust God, right? Commerce presents itself on the Sabbath. Will you make money or will you rest and trust God to provide? The seventh year comes around. God says, let the land be still. Will you trust God for provision in the seventh year? Will you let your debts go and be canceled as a, a mark of God's grace, but as a difficult matter for yourself. It's a matter of trusting God. All that's true even in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, these matters of Sabbath, well, they, they get elevated. They, they get transformed. With the marriage issue of verse 30, that remains in the New Testament, but with the Sabbath issue of verse 31, it gets a, a bit of a reformation in the New Testament. You see, Christ comes preaching this good news, this gospel, that he himself is our rest, our Sabbath. He says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all you who are sick and tired of trying to earn your way to God, come to me and I will give you rest. Sabbath. Do you hear the, the Sabbath overtones? Well, his first hearers certainly did. And the apostles certainly understood it aright. In Colossians 2, Paul says regarding a Sabbath of the Old Covenant, along with any other festival or special day of the calendar, these were, he says, mere shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Sabbath had its place. It, it had its importance in the Old Covenant. It was a shadow of what was to come. But Christ is the substance. So we as Christians have come to see that Christ is our Sabbath, our rest, not just on Saturday or just on Sunday, but every day, every moment. We must... We must not trust in our works, but we must trust in Christ who worked for us in rest in him. We must rest in him, and we do find rest in him. So Hebrews 4 can talk about that Old Testament Sabbath having its place, and its relevance now is that we rest in Christ. We who believed have come to rest in him. Therefore, strive to enter that rest. Again, I'll address you if you're, if you're not a Christian. Here's a, another way in which this speaks to you. 
this picture of the Sabbath is an invitation. You don't work your way to God as if you could ever possibly earn it. He's done it all. He's done all the work. You simply come to him believing and you rest. And guess what? You find rest in him. Now, does that mean that every day for the Christian is the same as any other day? Well, not exactly because... Sunday is called the Lord's Day in the New Testament. It's a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, which happened on that glorious Sunday morning. So every Sunday is a, it's a special day. It's a day of worship. It's a day of gathering together. But every day is our Sabbath rest in Christ. A third particular is that of contributions, we could call them. This is the longest section. It occupies a lot of verses, but, but really the, the matter can be treated along the same lines as these other two particulars we've already dealt with. There's a, an Old Testament background to understand, but then there's some New Testament relevance for us to, to gather. The Old Testament background is that there were various contributions or offerings taken up in the Old Testament and they were for the house of our God, as it says, or the house of the Lord. In other words, the temple. The temple and all that it entails. The whole sacrificial system, all the priests, all that went into it. In verse 32, they're told that they should give a third part of their money to the house of, the God, of our God. Verse 34, they're to give wood for the house of God. Just a real practical matter. There's a whole lot of burning that goes on among these priests throughout the year. And, and they shouldn't go into the woods and cut down trees. Don't, don't let them be distracted with that. Let's the people of God show up with wood and give them their wood. In fact, verse 35 speaks of the first fruits of everything that should be the Lord's and should be reflected in different ways. When we come to the New Testament, some of those specifics are shed. They're like a snake losing its skin. They're shed off. But there's a substance that remains in generosity and giving to God's kingdom is certainly one of those things that remains. We're to give to the poor. Just think of the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. That serves many purposes, that parable, but one of the simplest is just when you see someone in desperate need, meet that need, give what you can to help them out. We're to help each other out in the church as there is need. In Acts 2 and then in Acts 5 and other places, the church, it met its needs among its members. Those who had need, were given. Those who had much contributed. Now the amounts that are given in the old covenant don't seem to carry over to the new covenant. Percentages are shed away, but principles do remain. There are principles for our kingdom giving that we need to always keep in mind. You can find these in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, where Paul says that we should be generous in our giving or sacrificial even in our giving. 
We should be worshipful in our giving. We should give freely and and not begrudgingly. We should give according to what God provides for us. So we keep these principles in mind when we ask ourselves from time to time, how are we doing with that? How are we doing? I don't ask you how much you're giving. I never would. I can tell you as a church, as a whole, by God's grace, God keeps providing. We keep paying the bills. The lights are on in this building this morning. In fact, we have plans to do some multi-million dollar renovations in this building in the next year and a half. Praise God for that and thank you for your provision to the daily operation of this church and also to the future plans of this church. How are you doing as an individual or as a family? I don't know. Only you know that in God. And only you can answer. Only you can take a pulse on how things are before God in that regard. Can you say with this last verse, it's so great, isn't it? That great line of verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. As Drew began our service by telling us, this building is not the house of God. Now in the New Testament, the people are the household of God. How are you doing with the household of God? Is there anything you're neglecting in it? It may not just be financial. It may be otherwise. It might be in praying for the body or not. Studying the Bible with the body or or not or not enough. It might be prioritizing the meeting or the worship of the, the church together or not. Now, these are COVID days, and these are unusual times, and some are watching this from their living room because, well, there is a a pandemic, and uh, we don't fault you for that. But are you prioritizing the worship of God in a way where you can say with a clear conscience, in light of the grace of God, in light of the new covenant, which not only forgives all your sins, but also empowers you to do this, can you say, We will not neglect the household of God. Well, let's pray to that end. Yes, Lord, help us, we pray. The promises of the new covenant are that you would give us desires to do your will and that you would stick with us through thick and thin. You would be our God and we your people. We thank you for it. We thank you for the church, warts and all. Lord, we confess again, we are far from a perfect people, and we wish we had more transformation now than we will someday, but we trust you for that, and we freshly resolve to walk in your ways with your help, leaning on the new covenant promises that you will finish what you started in us. We thank you for that, and we thank you for each other. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let us stand and respond.
Jesus will have his prize, a blood-washed heavenly flock. May it be so. You can be seated. Do you find yourself among that blood-washed heavenly flock? You see, the shepherd laid his life down for the sheep. It's by his blood that the curse is removed, that the debt is canceled, that this new covenant is established. So we invite you to look to Jesus. If you've got questions about Jesus, if you've got questions about coming to Jesus, if you've, you've got hang-ups and concerns about coming to Jesus, we would love to know those. We would love to pray with you. We would love to help you. We'd love to answer questions you might have. I'll be up front after the service, and others will as well who are here to visit with you and talk to you about that. Or feel free to email us, info at dscabq.com, or call the church office during normal office hours, and we'd be glad to visit with you about these things. Well, church, we have sung that we are to be pressing in one hope with every grace endued. That's old English. We don't really talk that way. To one hope she presses with every grace endued. Well, that's the new covenant. It's what Hebrews 13 says, and I end with this blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, By the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you might do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen.